Father, bless us this morning as we consider this passage from your scriptures, um, as Jesus teaches his disciples. We ask that seeing it and thinking on it, you will also teach us for the praise of your glory. Amen. What's love? I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. You probably recognise the line, who can tell me the artist and the year? There we go. No one warned you we were having a trivia quiz this morning, did we? Come on, artist and the year. Yes, Joe? Oh, well done. Oh, give the man applause. Yeah, so the original song was performed by a group called Foreigner in 1984 and bumped Do They Know It's Christmas off the UK number one spot in January 1985. It was covered in 1985 by the New Jersey Mass Choir, in 1988 by Tina Arena, in 2004 by Winona Judd, and in 2009 by Mariah Carey. So it obviously touches a chord, pun intended. But do we really know what love is? Let me get this working. Okay, so let's try a little experiment. Look at the screen, and men, I'm going to talk to the men first, think about which of these people you have the most affection for, whom you are most devoted to. Ladies, think about how your man might answer or how you'd want him to answer. Okay, there's the first one, your children, your wife, your father, your mother, your boss, Malcolm Turnbull. Now, if you're a man living in the early Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, say before 1000 AD, how might you have answered? Let me show you. Does that surprise you? Do we know what love is? Did they? So let me show you something different. Does anyone recognise this aphorism? No, not that one, this one. Anyone seen that before? Is setting something free, is that the essence of love? What is love? Does it lift us up where we belong? Is it a second-hand emotion, a sweet old-fashioned notion? Or is it just a little bit of Monica, a little bit of Erica, and so on? Do you know what love is? Look, the Apostle John certainly thinks he knows what love is. In the NIV translation, the English word love appears 39 times in John's Gospel and another 34 times in his three epistles. In his Gospel, he refers to himself as, do we know this one? What does he refer to himself as in John's Gospel? The disciple Jesus loved, yes. And today's passage is just one part of a longer narrative and discourse that begins at John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So now Jesus is talking to his disciples, and as he is about to leave them to go to his death, he prepares them by talking about love. But do we know what love is? All good things come in threes, and so do all good sermons. So from this passage today, I want to unpack for you three perspectives on love. We might even call them three loves. 
Love up, love down, and love across. So love up, love down, love across. Let me explain. Love up. We talk lots about the love of God, but not as much about love for God. So I'd like to start with that. What does it look like to love God? As good egalitarians, it's easy to assume that our love for God is basically a lesser image of God's love for us. God initiates, we respond. It's like two sides of a same coin, a single coin. But let me show you something. Who can tell me what this is? 50 cents, yes, 50 cent piece. But there's a funny thing about coins. If the back side is the same as the front side, you don't have a coin, you've got a counterfeit. The back side is complementary, but it's not the same. So how do we respond to God's love? How do we show our love for God? Let me pull some quotes from this passage. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Love obeys. Is that what you expected to hear? But love obeys is a theme of this passage. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. John 14, 23 to 24. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. John 15.10 If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. We obey Jesus just as he obeys the Father. But this isn't something peculiar to our love for Jesus. It's a general pattern of love. In John 14, 31, Jesus says, so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. He continues this theme in his letters, 1 John 5, 3. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. We even see this idea in the Old Testament. Psalm 119, I just pulled a snippet out of it. It's one long meditation on how David delights in God's law and the keeping of it. And look, he doesn't delight in God's law because it's got some freestanding value, but because rather God's law teaches him how to obey the God he loves. Love obeys. Jesus' love for the Father is made complete in obedience. The disciples' love for their master, Jesus, is made complete in obedience. When we consider our love for God, does it lead us to obedience? Devote obedience that you take pleasure in. Or do we want to speak love, but hold on to our own authority? Let me ask the same question about our earthly leaders. Do you love your leaders? And does your love lead you to willing obedience? Do you love the head of your household? Children, I don't see many of them here, but anyway, children, do you love your parents and obey them? 
Wives, do you love your husband and obey him? Friends, do we love our Christian pastors and obey them? If your love doesn't lead you to a disposition of obedience and a desire for obedience, a desire to both please and obey your leaders, those God has placed over you, then it's not really true love. Now you'll probably observe, rightly, that our earthly leaders are flawed in ways that God is not. I've been there. I'm a husband and a father, and I know I've got flaws, even before you ask my wife and kids. I'm not unique. And because our leaders are flawed, the time will come when we have to say, I must obey God first. That's a good thing. But where's your heart? Is your desire to obey? Or are you like the rebellious teenager who can't wait to catch his mother out so he can justify his disobedience? In our egalitarian, rebellious society, is our inclination to cheer when someone stands against his parents in Christ's name? Yay, go you! When we should instead be providing comfort because the sin of our world and our hearts inflicts upon them a conflicted love. When you love up, you obey. You obey God and you obey your earthly leaders. But that's all ultimately background to what Jesus is focusing on here. Our culture finds it unnerving to couple love and obedience. The ancient world, less so. But the perspective on love that drives Jesus' discussion here and indeed drives all of John's writing is love down. The Father's love for his Son and God's love for us. All true love begins with our Heavenly Father. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. We have seen that the Son loves and obeys the Father and we also love and obey the Son. But the process starts from the other end. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father and so loves us. Cold weather makes it hard to turn pages. What's God's love like? How does the Father love the Son? How is this love shown to us? Again, our egalitarian view of love misleads us. If you love someone, set them free. Does the Father set the Son free? Does God set us free? In Scripture, when the Father releases someone from his authority, this is a sign of judgment, not love. Rebels are released by God, released, given over to slavery, to their own sin. Contrarywise, when God rescues his people, he doesn't set them free from his control, but sets them free from that same slavery to sin, redeeming them by his mighty power and lordship and bringing them into his kingdom under God's lordship. Or perhaps God's love is most expressed in doing good for others. As Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Is love best seen in a disposition that does good for others? Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. 
But God demonstrates his own love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's a good thing. But if it's the ultimate expression of love, how does the Father's love for the Son provide an example of this love? The Father doesn't sacrifice himself for the Son. Rather, Romans 8.32 says that he who didn't spare his own Son but gave him up for us all. If the pinnacle of love is doing good to others, Jesus seems to get the short end of the stick. He loves while the Father lets his Son love for him. We think this way because our perspective is too small and honestly too focused on us. God does indeed express his love through his goodness. Please don't hear me denying that. But the goal of his love, the goal is community, and more than community, it is unity. God's agenda is not acts of goodness, but it's gathering a people, a family. Hear the words of Jesus. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realise that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Look, the Father doesn't let the Son do his dirty work for The Father's plan is to glorify himself and his Son and the people he is calling. The Son suffers but he is raised in glory as the one who brings salvation. And because the Son loves the Father, he brings the glory back to him. Moreover, we, we who love and obey the Son, are made part of this. God loves us and draws us into his household. We love God and come. It's easy to think of authority as existing primarily to benefit the one who wields it. That's not God's way. The opposite mistake is to think authority exists to benefit the people. That's not God's way either. God's love and authority work as one for the benefit of the lover and the beloved together. Again, let me draw some analogies to earthly authority. Husbands, parents... Is your authority a tool of your love? Not overly permissive, not self-centred, self-glorifying and domineering, but genuinely seeking the good and the unity of everyone in your household. Is the goal of your love a household where everyone seeks the good of each other and delights in each other? God doesn't do this hands-off, and you can't either. You can't do it by being distant, or by being domineering, or for that matter, chasing around everyone else as they do their own thing or expecting everyone else to chase around as you do your thing. There's a lot more that can be said here, but let me go somewhere else you might not expect. Pastors, do you view your church in the same way? Do you love your church and its people, and loving them, do you exercise your authority to build them up and delight in each other? Or bosses, 
Bosses, should you perhaps be loving your workers in the same way? Granted, the workplace isn't quite a household, but maybe it's close enough. To love down as God loves down means to seek community and unity in love to the glory of the entire community. Love across. We've looked at love up. We've looked at love down. The application of this is love across. Love for each other. Several times, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commands. But at this time, as he prepares them for his death and resurrection, there is one particular command he wants to keep them to keep front and foremost in their minds. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now John doesn't specifically mention it, at least that I could find, but we know from the other Gospels that one common conversation topic amongst the disciples was their pecking order in the New Kingdom. Which of the disciples would be the greatest? And John, he's one of the inner circle of three, so he's right up there in the running. Mark even records James and John forming a private lobbying block for places of honour in the New Kingdom. The other disciples, needless to say, weren't very impressed about this. But Jesus, he cuts right through this. The one who is greatest will be the one who loves most. The one who loves most will do the greatest work for the kingdom. What's this work? To die as God's holy sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring about God's rescue and turn aside God's wrath from those who are called as God's people. There's only one qualified to be the greatest man in God's kingdom, the pure, sinless one who loves sinners so much that he will become man and die so that sinners, sinners of all people, can become family with him and with his father. Think back to John 13. I quoted it earlier. You know the story. It's the Passover meal. Jesus is the guest of honour. And he gets up and he does what the lowly servant would do. He washes the disciples' feet. All his disciples want to identify with Jesus as the one who is honoured. They don't know how to handle him being the servant. But Jesus, he's not abdicating his power. How does he start his explanation? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that is what I am. Jesus, he's making a statement about power and love acting together. The Great One does not soak up accolades like a sponge. He uses his power to meet the needs of his people. And what do his people need? They need to be brought into unity with the Father. The time for accolades will come when the Father crowns the Son with all glory and honour and power. But that time comes once God has saved his people and gathered them to himself. There's no shortcut. Jesus is about, in this story, he's about to carry out the great act of salvation, the act anticipated for ages past that will establish God's new kingdom and bring the gift, the gift of forgiveness 
and renewal that humankind so badly needs. And once he has done this and ascended to heaven, his disciples, then they will become leaders in spreading the effects of this plan to the end of the earth. But they can't become the leaders Jesus needs if they're looking for shortcuts to glory. They need to be united. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And they need to be united in seeking God's kingdom, whatever the earthly cost, just as their master is. How are they to seek God's kingdom? By taking the gospel out so that others can come in. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. God's kingdom, it's a kingdom of love and unity, starting from the Father and to the Son and to all his people. How do you seek God's kingdom? You love one another and you share that love with others so that they can join in. Look around you. No, seriously, take a moment to look around you at the people gathered here. Look around. Hopefully your necks are still youthful enough to be able to look over your shoulders. Jesus gave himself so that these people gathered with you today can be united with you and God. What can you do to express and practice that reality? Is it your presence simply being part of the community? Is it by being friendly? Is there someone in need you can welcome? Do you have some material blessing that you can share to meet someone's need? How can you work together? How can we work together for the kingdom? The master says, love each other as I love you. He leads by taking the initiative to do good to God's people and to establish them in the kingdom. How will you do that? And what of those outside? It's good to do good to all people. But good works are not the good news. Jesus' ultimate goal is to seek and save the lost. A few weeks ago, Matt used the image of drawing near to Jesus. Do you remember that image? I think it's a good image. We need to be inviting people in to the party, not just taking party food outside to them. I think we often prefer to do good works than to do the greatest work of sharing the gospel. Repent, believe, obey. Doing good works feels less costly because it avoids the decision point. The gospel presents everyone with a very uncomfortable challenge. Will you love God or will you love the world? Will you love God or will you hate him? Are you going to give up your rebellion in order to love and obey God? Maybe your spiritual dealings with non-Christians are like that of an awkward teenage boy with a crush on a girl. You know the type, hanging around, doing random nice things, hoping she'll notice him, and when he see, she sees how nice he is, that she'll make the first move. 
Sure, it's awkward and embarrassing, but he doesn't have to put anything on the line. Don't be like that. Speak the message of the kingdom. Until outsiders are united with God and become insiders, they are outside his love. They cannot love him back. They cannot obey in love and they remain condemned. Share your good works by all means. But if you're not seeking to bring outsiders in, then you're not following the example of your Lord and Master. I was going to conclude with a final exhortation to live the life of love. But I've changed my mind. Let me instead exhort you to live in the kingdom of love. Love's not just an action or a feeling. It's not even a way of life. Pretty close. But I'd describe it as a place. The life of love is to dwell in unity with God and with his people. Obey whom you should obey. Lead for the good of others. Seek to bring others in. And do it all for the glory of the God who loves you. Amen. Father God, thank you that you love us, that you call us, that you have sent Jesus who has died and been raised to bring us into your kingdom. Keep us in your kingdom. Keep us loving you. Keep us loving our fellow brothers and sisters. And let us bring your love to the world and call them into the kingdom also so that they can share with you and your son and us and be united with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.